Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. All right, it's good stuff. It's a Laugh Podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm your host, L Train. Richard Lusk over there is a co-host, Mr. Two Frames, Ryan Bull. How are you, sir? Doing well. The movie that we're going to be reviewing for you today, we have been waiting to review for a long time, and it's Jeremy Saulnier's follow-up to Blue Ruin, Green Room. Gentlemen, I hope you appreciate the situation. Things have gone south. No doubt. Now, whatever you saw or did is no longer my concern. But let's be clear. It won't end well. movie is about a punk rock band who after with witnessing a murder is forced into a vicious fight for survival against a group of maniacal skinheads and their dogs there's a lot of dog tension in this yeah that couldn't have been good for you yeah i had a had a bit of a problem with it and we did have one person walk out of the theater on this film i don't think it was during any dog scene though it's a brutal movie stars anton yelkin and joe cole calcum callum turner Elias Shawcott as uh, this band, this punk rock band that goes into the woods and encounters a group of skinheads led by Patrick Stewart, plays Darcy. Uh, what did you think of the band? They seem like a punk rock band. Did, did they, they were seem believable. Like a band? At, yeah, they seem believable as that. I believe Anton Yelkin has played in a punk band before during his teenage years. And I know the director was very heavily into the Northern Virginia punk band rock scene. And I think all of these others have some artistic talent Mm -hmm. or musical talent anyway. Uh, So it looked like they handled their instruments well. This is the second movie where Aaliyah Shakwat plays a um, rock star or a rock band girl that I've seen. She was a rock band girl in uh, Pee-wee's Big Big Holiday. Ooh which came out recently on Netflix. I thought she was a highlight in the movie. She's quickly, for me, becoming a, a lab podcast fave. Yeah, we uh, reviewed her movie, The Final Girls, where she has a bit part in that. There's something about her that's very naturalistic, and something about all of these characters that made me... It, it, it felt very real. This movie felt like it could have happened. He, aside, all of the inanity that ensues in terms of plot aside, in terms of production and putting you in a world this world exists i believe it and i believe that these people exist in this world oh definitely and that was something the director has talked about he had to be very careful to specifically say this uh neo-nazi group skinhead group is non-affiliated and he tried to make sure it didn't sound like any other specific group yeah do you want a group like this coming after you I don't think so. No, of course not. But I wonder how many of them were technical advisors on the film. Because I know he does his research. Yeah, and, and people were asking him, well, where'd you go? And he said, yeah, there 
I'm probably on the government watch list now because of some <laughs> of the websites he went to. I wonder if he went to actual. Well, I think as a performer, I heard him say that he he performed for neo-Nazi skinheads in this in a punk rock band. So you can you can see that this is a believable thing. Some of the music that they reference is uh, well known in the punk rock community. So even if you didn't know anything at all about punk rockers or neo-Nazis, mm-hmm. you can still understand their world and see it as a, as this is a slice of life for a lot of people. Yeah. And while these are skinheads, neo-Nazis, there's not a whole lot of politics in this film. It's more, they're just an organization and they're grouped together. Yeah. It's It's almost kind of run like a military outfit. There's a definite hierarchy. It's, it's there. The, the political aspect of it and the racial politics and all is there as a subtext. And it's referenced a few times. Uh, They make a few comments that sort of come off as ironic and perhaps funny. But there, yeah, there's not a whole lot of backstory to any of these. Well, there's a lot of backstory, but none of it is talked about. It's this movies like this are like the antithesis of of Inception, where there's actual characters who exist just to tell you what's going on in the movie. And uh, in a way, I think I kind of prefer movies like this that just kind of take a section and let you see it and then make your own decisions on the kind of people that they were, the kinds of things that led them to the, to this world or into this situation. Like um, early in the film, you see these that in order to get from place to place, this band has to siphon gas from people. So, uh, you know, that puts them in a very strange position in terms of, you know, affiliating yourself with them or wanting to see them heroically or, or, aligning yourself with them as an audience but there's something about them each of them that's sort of likable and you know you can kind of let them act as anti-heroes are they really that likable at the beginning of this film because that's one of the things i appreciate there was no save the kitten moment it was the antithesis of that really yeah they're siphoning off gas they don't seem like that great of a band i mean they have almost illusions of grandeur they end up playing at a Mexican restaurant for like five people. Yeah, I think that that's a mis. I mean, that's an unhappy hap- happenstance, but I don't think that has anything to do with their talents. Are, well, I, I don't I know mean, enough about punk music. Are they really that talented, or are they kind of blowhards? Because there's that interview they do for the college podcast, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they're talking about the art and everything. And I wasn't sure completely how I was supposed to understand that. And then later on. When they go out and play in front of the uh, skinheads, they their first song is designed to just upset these people as much as possible. I'm like, why should I be rooting for these idiots? Because I knew things were going to get bad at some point, but I thought, these people are idiots. They're bringing it on themselves. Well, that's the way I feel about anybody in a horror movie to begin with. I mean, most most of the time, that I don't they don't appeal to me because of their poor decision making or because they you know they're stupid teenagers or whatever. But I don't know. For me, the movie, maybe I'm predisposed to like Anton Yelkin and stuff. I mean, I've never seen Odd Thomas. Oh, <laughs> you beat me to the punch. He, he was great in, uh, he's great as Chekhov in the Star Trek movies. And they just seemed, re- I mean, maybe not likable. I mean, I think that uh, Sam, the girl played, the, gr- the girl in the band, Aaliyah Shawcott, there was, there's something about her that's honest when she's on screen and honesty. And I mean, even though she's stealing gas from people, but uh, a sense of purpose and a sense of like, I don't know, 
quiet confidence is attractive to me. Not like I think I don't know if she's an attractive person, like physically. I, I think that there's something about her presence that was attractive. And then I like the I mean, they're a punk rock band. They're supposed to be subversive. So you're supposed to they're supposed to be edgy. And then in that sense, I guess I kind of they were also attractive to me right. because they're filling that, you know, they're they're playing that role. Well, just this whole nomadic lifestyle, living out of a van with a bunch of people. I thought, yeah, that's not the life for me. Oh, really? But you didn't want to be in a rock band when you were a kid? No, not at all. And I'm not big on traveling. I'm very much a home buddy. I think everybody wanted to be at some point, you know, there's something about fame and or having people recognize you for your abilities. Yeah. There's but when, but that. when I realized you'd have to travel because of that, I thought, <laughs> nope. Don't well, I didn't want to wanna, do it. I didn't want to practice. I never wanted to practice the instrument. I just wanted to be able to play the guitar or the piano. But wouldn't it be cool to like be able to like go into any bar, or maybe not any bar, but any party, and just start playing an instrument and having everybody sing? Oh wow, look how talented he is! No, no, nope, never appeals. I mean, all right, it appeals to me. Being a stand-up comedian seemed kind of fun to me, and then I learned, oh yeah, you're, you're on funny. the road constantly. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to let humor get in the way of it, but having to travel around yeah. to various cities, I thought, nah, I'm good. Right. Does not appeal to me. I think I could, I could go for that kind of life. I would have to give up my dogs, my fiance. Right. So that would be tough. But I, I wouldn't mind being a, you know, living this life for a little bit when you're younger. I wouldn't want to be menaced by neo-Nazi skinheads. So it, in terms of that, the world that they find themselves in, did that seem real to you? Did that seem Oh like yeah, a, yeah, that okay. that felt like real places. Uh, what do you call them? Shot houses, or I mean, it's on the edge of uh, legitimacy. The place where they play, the venue where mm-hmm. they play, is sort of just hanging out on the edge of legitimacy. Because I mean, uh, cops have to come there for an incident that happens, and this makes them seem, you know, like at least they're aware of them out there. So they probably have a liquor license. I don't know. I know they're selling liquor. I guess, but this is far out in the country, and you have a lot of rundown buildings, that sort of stuff. Kind of got to let them do their thing. Yeah, if if they're keeping quiet, keeping to themselves. It just doesn't seem to me like much of a business plan. I'm not really sure how much well, money they're uh, making from these events. Yeah, I don't think that's the big premise. Yeah. I don't know how much we want to get into spoilers. Uh, one of the things I like is this is a grindhouse film, right? This is B-class fare, but it's done very well. It's shot well. The tension's uh, put together well. It's well edited. So it, it comes off very nicely. But at its heart, this is not fine cinema. And Jeremy Solnier, the director, said he felt if he wanted to do this type of film, he needed to do this early in his career because he's trying to become a studio director. Okay, I think he's getting tired of the independent scene from what I've been reading about him just because it's so hard to get funding for films. He'd like to do bigger pictures and not just have to put your heart and soul into a film. He worked on this for three years and probably this isn't going to make any real money. This Um, is more a resume building film. It's a good film. And I think we're both going to end up recommending it, but Solnier is hoping to get noticed so that he can go on to other things. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I understand that, but this will still be I mean for me it was probably in the top I want to say the top five movies of the year so far you know I haven't made a list yet I haven't looked at the movies that I've 
last year I did it throughout the year. I mm-hmm. started in January. I haven't even thought about that, but this movie sticks out for me now as being near the top, you know, of the first half of the year. So I you're saying that it's not. I'm saying if if we want to compare Solnier to who'd be a director, uh, Tarantino maybe this is more like his Reservoir Dogs, okay. smaller budget before you know more of the independent thing. But the movie itself comes off better than Midnight Special, and this guy is at similar stages in his career with the number of films that they've had as Mike Nichols. But his, I mean, he, Nichols has been in the business a lot longer. Yeah. Maybe not a lot longer, maybe about 10 years or so. But for me, this is a more enjoyable experience than Midnight Express. And part of the part of it was the acting. Isn't it Midnight? No, Midnight, Midnight Special. Midnight Special. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Nichols. Midnight Express film. is a better movie than all of them. Yeah, I think Jeff Nichols, though, is Oh, did I said Mike more... Nichols before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Uh, uh, Jeff Nichols, though, wants smaller, I think, character pieces. Solnier is looking to tell a good story. And I think he's trying to find interesting aspects of the plot to focus on, you know, and just interesting moments action wise, right. uh, things to do with the camera where Jeff Nichols, I mean, he just holds the camera on an actor's face and just lets the actor do amazing things with just, you know, a, a stare. Michael Shannon is great for that. Right. I guess my point is that I like this movie better. That's fine. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, uh, style aside and story aside, it kept me entertained and interested. Do you think Solnier is going to go on to a bigger career than Jeff Nichols? Bigger? You mean more commercial? Probably, but just because I, like you said, I don't think Nichols is that interested in in being a commercial filmmaker. But I could see Solnier doing eventually. Um, I don't know a Prometheus three or. Ooh. something like that uh maybe not necessarily a genre film but i could you know i could definitely see him taking on uh tentpole movies he he still he tells stories visually and there's always payoffs there's setup and there's a payoff and there's usually some type of arc and he doesn't have to explain things he doesn't need to explain things nichols is the same way in that sense but for me this is more satisfying in the long run simply because um it just seemed to fit together better as a like puzzle pieces. That's fine. So I disagree, but that's fine. It's fine. I, I, I think Nichols Nichols right now is the darling of Khan or Khan, however you want to pronounce it, with right. his new film. This is the, he's a Blue Ribbon winner over there too with he, Blue Ruin, and he, I know Green Room was uh, on the director's fortnight over there at Khan. Yeah, I, so I. I I think they're both going to go on to do great things. I'm glad that we're covering them and laugh. So, well, we haven't even mentioned the star of the movie, really. I guess for me, it's uh, the character Macon Blair plays. <laughs> Macon Blair was in Blue Ruin, and he is the sort of manager of this shot house, this neo Nazi shot house. Mm-hmm. He's the only one that really sort of maintains throughout the movie and, and then transforms, right? He has a bit of a character arc, sure. There's a again an earnestness in the character and he seemed it didn't seem like to me someone just acting a part. I mean it seemed like a real dude. Like I could see this guy as a skinhead not wanting to go to jail and then wanting to go to jail instead of being killed. So there were there was something about him that was uh I, I think that he's the, the the emotional core of the movie. 
like you, you, you can track him through the movie and see how he responds to things and how he responds to other characters instead of uh, the situation that these other kids find themselves in. So, yeah, there, there's a great humanity to Megan. I like old Megan Blair. He's a childhood friend of the director, and the director has said many times he just likes the way the camera frames his buddy, and there's just something that uh, calls attention to the guy. But the character Gabe in the movie also seems like a guy that has things under control, and he's trying to do what he thinks is the right thing, and then it all sort of like blows up in his face. And I just like the way that character responds and the way the actor plays him. So, yeah, he's got those big, almost like puppy dog eyes. He just has this look. Yeah. What did you think of the sort of interloper into their little group, or the the person that gets they that they have to um, join forces with, who's a neo Nazi at the beginning of the movie? I guess she doesn't play much of a role until uh, the murder that they witness. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Amogen them together. Yeah, I'm just to me, she was a misstep. Really? Yeah. Oh, I liked her character. I thought she added a lot. She was as annoying as her haircut. Oh, no. She she makes for a nice counterbalance. She also seemed to just have some common sense on her, where a lot of the other characters were missing that. She She's good. She also makes for a nice foil with Anton Yelkin. Yeah, I didn't so. get that. I thought she was the weakest part in the movie, but there were there were things that she did that it didn't it didn't help the story, and it just sort of made me step back and go, eh, all right, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, I mean, I again, I think it's a strong movie, and I think there's strong actor performances throughout, so for her to be the weakest of the five or six main roles, that doesn't mean that she was weak at all. Oh, no, I, I, just, I, thought, I, thought... I, I thought there were a few things that were sort of misfiring with her. But I like it, Bill, so they don't explain a whole lot about her backstory. Yeah, and they never have to. I don't think he feels he has to. Yeah, so I like that. No, I, I liked it, or I liked her role. I didn't know she was British, and, I mean, to me, she just felt like some American actress that they uh, found in some southern state. Right. And apparently not at all, and if you watch interviews with her, she sounds nothing like her character did in the movie. Neither did Patrick Stewart, another British actor who's playing Oh yeah, he, a strong American. He disappears into the role as Darcy. I mean, it was very chilling, his role, and... The way he stays so calm, I think he only yells at one point. He yells at mm-hmm. a Mason. He's based and then on he a real apologizes life. right away. And there's a real evil vibe. Yeah, there's always off. a menace with him. You're not really sure what's going on with him. And he's ordering around all these skinheads who are much bigger than he is, right. but they're all very afraid of him. He, That's real power. He has the look going into the movie. They didn't have to work on makeup very much. Sort of like in the movie Paz Aglore that we've watched recently in our class, mm-hmm. uh, the guy who plays General Moreau has a giant scar across his face. And they, uh, Kubrick accentuates that scar. You can accentuate Patrick Stewart's skinhead because he actually has a skinhead. Yeah. Patrick Stewart's definitely a strong pick for this movie. And when you look at a lot of the actors, you probably go, yeah, I, I recognize some of these names. But they're all great character actors, and no one, I feel, is trying to steal a scene away from other people. I agree. And that's really hard, especially with some of these smaller indie films. I feel like oftentimes you have people trying to steal some limelight. Yeah, I think that's an 
effect of the acting or the directing. Sorry. Yeah. He must be pulling these guys back. Maybe not with Patrick Stewart so much. He probably had a handle on the character, but because he's Patrick Stewart, he has that sort of gravitas anyway. So, but even you're a second time director. It's a little indie film. You're asking Patrick Stewart who stars in big movies, you know, the X-Men stuff. He did Star Trek and he's coming to your film. How do you direct that guy? You know, if you don't like the take Patrick Stewart's giving, how do you reel him back in? And I feel like everyone is reeled in and on the same page and, trying to make the best movie possible. I think part of that is because he's such a mensch, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> oh, it's great casting then. So uh, I think they got lucky with him. Yeah, the only thing that upset me in this movie was the MMA moves. All right, maybe we should move on to spoilers then. So that Is you this can... a spoiler? Well, it would be, I think, if you wanted to set it all up. I mean, we've been pretty good at keeping away all from right. the main Fair sort of events that lead to the the menacing, the chasing, and all that, so... We can we can get into that hmm, in the spoiler enough. section. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. So they get into this green room. They leave some of their stuff behind, or it's put out into the hallway. They wind up going back for their cell phone. Imagine that the cell phone is the end of the world for these kids. And uh, they go back in there to grab the cell phone and they see a girl has been stabbed in the head through a series of uh, sort of trying to wrangle them and get these kids back into the room. They make this 911 call. The kids get back into this green room and they're locked in there with these Nazi skinheads. And then the movie sort of, uh, that's that's where it, it all sort of begins and sets up the whole um sort of i don't want to call it a macguffin because it's not really a macguffin but it's the it's the destabilizing event that puts all of the other events in motion Mm -hmm. so uh you have this punk rock band locked in this room with a bunch of skinheads and a gun appears well the skinheads are trying to get in so it's like a home invasion film or assault on precinct 13 something Mm -hmm. like that right right so at one point all the skinheads leave except for one guy with a gun and then one of the characters, I think it's uh, Reese, played by Joe Cole, attempts to, or he, he says, let's just rush him. There's only so many bullets in the gun. Let's just bum rush him and we'll take the gun away from him. And he's fairly confident that he can take this guy on. Although the big Justin, played by Eric Edelstein, is actually a good, I don't know, four inches taller and probably 70 pounds heavier than than any of those punk rockers. So, oh, yeah, easily. They don't set up necessarily that this guy, uh, Reese, is a an MMA, MMA fighter, but then apparently through the grappling that ensues, you're able to ascertain that he's fairly decent at the Oh, position. yeah. He, he puts the guy in a very uh, textbook armbar, crosses his ankles so the guy can't roll forward. Right. You know, all those technical things were well done, and they and he references some stuff you know it's made clear that he's fought mma before so i appreciate all that i'm like you know it's pretty smart armbar is pretty safe move put a guy in uh, all that's good later on when he chokes the guy out he has a horrible rear naked choke it looks like the million dollar man ted dibiase doing the million dollar dream to a guy you, you know, know this it, means it's a horrible like to sleeper hold. Ninety-eight percent of your list of the left podcast <laughs> listeners have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, he, he's got a chin lock. He's got his elbow underneath 
the guy's chin. Uh-huh. He's got one arm wrapped around the guy's throat. His other hand is wrapped around the guy's forehead, basically. And, you know, sleeper hold, trying to put the guy to right. sleep. Ro- Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Famous. <laughs> okay. Right. All right. Now you're down to 90 When you're doing a rear naked choke, your second arm goes behind the guy's neck, and you're trying to make your arms meet together. You're, you're basically trying to scissor the guy's neck so that you cut off blood supply. If he's an MMA guy, that's one of the first things you learn. And then he's surprised when the guy goes unconscious. And he doesn't Is know, he... like, what do I do to kill him? No, I thought, well, if you're MMA, you would know this. You would know how to do a blood choke. You would know how a blood no, choke see, I works. Didn't even, I didn't even know that that was... I didn't know that that was uh, the problem there. I didn't know that that was the conflict. I think he knew he wanted to kill him. Yeah, but then he's like, tell me when he goes out. And it's one of those, you'd feel it, plus the guy would go out a lot quicker if it's a blood choke. And I, I know I had to explain all this to you on the car right <laughs> yeah, back. So, to but me, that... When you do the arm bar at the beginning, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, it does, it, that didn't work well for me. It seems to me like that was then set up also so that you could have a scene that I didn't like, which was when uh, Imogene Poots' character box cuts him, box cuts his op- his first layer of skin open after he's dead or before he's dead or to see if he's dead. It, it, it's like make it's just him there. bleed out. I don't know. It's 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 just there because it's a neat little effect. That's what it seems like to me. And so everything that precedes that is in service to this effect. And so it's... How it's do we get his a, belly exposed? Or, yeah, how, how, can I, how can I use this box cutter in a, in a way that makes the biggest visual impact? So yeah. I, I guess it's somewhat weirdly ironic that the biggest problems that we had with the scene happened within, or the whole movie happened within you know, four and a half seconds of each other. Yeah, and then, well, but then the MMA guy goes down, uh, he gets his throat ripped out by a dog, and that's really the only person these dogs manage to kill, is the MMA guy. Later on, the dog uh, bites Emma Poots's ankle. But that's that's outside. Yeah, but I'm like, wait, they can take down the MMA guy. The MMA guy has no idea how to deal with the dog, has no idea how to survive, but everyone else gets bent on the leg or is able to escape the dog. Arguably the most athletic guy, the guy who's going to be best at violence, is the one who goes down. No, but that, I didn't like that. To me, when they uh, had a, they had one of the other band members find a way out. He jumps out through a window and ends up getting stabbed in the back before he can get up off the ground. That's how I would have killed off MMA guy. Yeah, but they don't know who's who in this. And I, I guess you're saying if you're Jeremy Saulnier, yeah. you would have had him bum rushed and or whatever. And, yeah, uh, jump out through the window and then you know he gets stabbed from behind. From you know a threat he couldn't see that would make more sense to me. Let someone to me else like get their was throat ripped out by, by a shotgun or something. Something else had wounded him before the dog got him. But either way, but being that he was out of the venue, they couldn't use the feedback trick to scare the dog off. And he was outside when he was attacked by the or when he was no, killed no, no, by no. the he dog. No, no, no. He was in the main room. He wasn't killed by the or he was killed by the dog in the yeah, main room. Yeah, he's when the dog is first comes in. He's the one okay. that the dog jumps on. I thought and it was outside. His throat. And then that's when the one guy in the audience left, or shortly thereafter. I think he had to gather up his popcorn and drink. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I honestly, I thought he was outside. But then they get her. They get the dog off of the girl with the feedback mm-hmm. and the mics, and then they use that later on. So I think that they did a pretty good job of explaining why you can only have one dog in there at a time, and then setting up a reason or uh, at least uh, a, a way of of dealing with these attack dogs. Mm-hmm. So. I didn't have much of a problem with that. And then the dog at the end was a nice touch because there's all so many different ways that that dog could go. 
Like I was thinking that the dog was going to attack uh, Gabe, making Blair's character. That that oh, was going to be chase the him down. and it wouldn't even be ironic. It would just be he, he runs into him and then you know chews him up or whatever. And then when that doesn't happen, uh, I assumed that there was going to be some like sort of comeback attack. But the way that they let it end um, points to the originality of the story and the originality of a storytelling. So it becomes a strength in the movie. Whereas normally I wouldn't like anything that has to do with dogs and menace and dogs dying and things of that nature. So, um, but I know you had some problems surrounding the dogs and the way they handle the dogs. Ironically, more so than I did. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think these are some minor plot holes, choreography issues, but generally those are the things I'm going to focus on more. I think I would have liked seeing, and I like this, I would have liked this in every movie. I, I wanted to see the space unadulterated and and know the layout in my head instead of having to piece it together uh, in little bits, you know? I I kind of like the overhead view of something so that I can establish where characters are in relation to each other and where this room is. I understand it after the movie, and it's like everything else with Saulnier's work. Things are like sort of, sort of sent out piecemeal or visually. I get that. I like it. But I, I also kind of like the idea of knowing where things are in relation to each other so that I can. Yeah, the, the layout of the building was odd. And then they make a big deal about Patrick Stewart's character doesn't want stuff in the hallway because it's a fire hazard. But I'm pretty sure like that green room is a fire hazard. There's no second exit. Like, aren't you kind of required to have windows or exits in the back yeah, of the I building? Like, yeah, I don't know having this long hallway where you have to go. But when it's the room that is over the top of your, uh, heroin lab or whatever your drug lab, then maybe, maybe those rules don't apply so much. I'm like, wow, they're next to no windows in this place. How is that allowed? (laughs) Yeah. What are the restrictions on? Plus, I mean, the place looked like it was falling down. I thought you can't bust through the wall. Yeah. That's some sheetrock. And then you got some siding on the outside. Although they did try that. They I mean they did bust through the floor, so Yeah, they bust I think, through the wood floor. They can't dent the I, th- wall I think at all. the green room itself is in the center of this establishment. I don't think there are any uh external walls to it. When you see the shot of the uh, vent or whatever that uh, leads from out outside of the lab, it's sort of in the middle of the lobby or the middle of the not lobby, the middle of the uh, courtyard. Okay. So, uh, yeah. it's sort of like the Cloverfield Lane, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, I don't know if I had the same problems with 10 Cloverfield Lane, but it's, it's occurring to me that the, the overall layout uh, of these places, sometimes I, I kind of like that better. I think they do a pretty good job with that in Daredevil, the TV series on Netflix, setting up these characters in their space so that you can understand how a blind guy can fight them. But, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine. And I I think it runs counter to what Jeremy Saulnier is all about, which is put it all together later. I'm giving you the pieces you put together the the, uh, picture. Yeah. I mean, I like he's still being original and he does some interesting things. I don't feel like I've seen forever, but he still understands the rules of storytelling. You know, you see this big 50 caliber Smith and Wesson handgun. I mean, it's a hand cannon, really. And they talk about, you know, how big the bullets are. You can only fit five of them in there. The gun finally gets fired at the end of the movie and creates this huge dent, Mm -hmm. you know, where you really feel the power. And 
wow, this could have blown someone's head off. I'm glad that the gun got fired. Because to me, if you show a pistol, if you create menace with it, it needs to go off at some point. It's Chekhov's rule, right? You want to have that satisfaction. I thought it would have been a huge cheat to never have that gun go off. Anton Yelkin had that rule, huh? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. Maybe it would be too subversive by half if they didn't shoot the gun. But the way that they handled that final shootout where the gun is drawn, it's pretty original. I mean, the lead character or the, the, the menacing character in the shootout turns and runs away or walks away deliberately. I think it's to give him a chance to pull the gun out. And then he shoots the gun. So If he walks away, they're not going to shoot him in the back. He fe- feels they I have mean, enough humanity. There's that too, but it's also confusing. I mean, it get, you're like, what? What's this guy? I mean, that's how conceited he is. He's like, just turn around and walk away. I'm not going to deal with these people anymore. It's what I wanted to do several times in class. <laughs> just walk out of the door. You know, It'd be ultra confusing for kids. And these guys are kids, you know, so. Yeah. Um, it's good that they shot him in the back, though. The movie could have ended very differently had they not decided to shoot the man in the back of the head. I thought he turns around and they get him. Right well, the they're not stopping, waiting for him to turn around. I think he walks away deliberately so that he can pull a gun. Well, they're not great with guns, and I, I like that they but, only have a couple bullets. I mean, this isn't uh, like a John Woo movie where it's just bullets galore. But think about that. The guy, if you're standing there and you got a guy that's you know is probably not trained in gun warfare and he's certainly not a Nazi skinhead, but he's he's pointing a gun at you. You know that there's no chance of you getting that gun out of your holster or wherever it is in your waistband. Mm-hmm. If you're just standing there, he's just going to shoot you. But if you turn around and walk the other way, pull the gun out. Confuse him. Yeah, you got a, a chance there. That's, I mean, you're, yeah, you're playing the odds. I think it's a cool move. Oh, yeah. And I'm he... going to remember that the next time I'm with a giant Smith & Wesson and some teenager has, has the drop on me. Ooh, I wouldn't want to fire that gun. No, I'd probably, I wouldn't be able to fire it with my arm the way it is. I'd have to use it left-handed. If you could hold on to I mean, though, that gun is just ridiculous. You'd probably hit hit. yourself in the forehead with it. <laughs> oh, there are people who have blown off their thumbs because they try and grip it with two hands. And if you don't put your hands in the right spot, there's so much blowback from that gun. Good stuff. Yeah. That's probably more than our audience needs to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, after you got in all the technical. Uh, I, I love all that minutia. And, MMA, well, MMA and, moves. And one of the things is I like it is a scary looking gun. If they had just gone with a Glock or, you know, a more standard, smaller pistol, it just wouldn't work as well. Did you have any problem with uh, Pat holding onto the gun and sticking out of the door and then being stabbed and mauled several times. And then they pull his hand back in and he still has a hold of the gun. And it's, it becomes a thing. It's like, how'd you hold onto that gun? But his, his, his arm is all ripped apart. Yeah. Well, and they didn't really show how they were doing. Uh, yeah. I thought some of that staging was off because if he's going to give up the gun, why do you have to have everyone around the door? So close, get the gun and then bum rush him two or three minutes later. You yeah. Know, I, I, I don't remember that. I just, I, I know that they snatched his, it's like arm. the moray eel in the deep, snatching his arm into the hole, and then it comes back all ripped apart. But he's able to use it pretty well later. He doesn't even yeah, he has it. a pretty deep cut. I mean, his hands Several. almost Hamburger. all the way sawed through, yeah. But they get some duct tape, and everything's okay. Well, but that's also a smart move. You show the wound, and then you start covering it up. Um, they did that in the Captain America movie with the Vision uh-huh. character. You know, he's got all this makeup on. But then they have him start wearing normal Earth clothes. 
so you don't have to do all this fancy makeup all over his whole body. It was well, just a smart move to cover The last it up. one that we just saw? Yeah. Uh, I didn't notice. Yeah. They, they even comment on like his Argyle sweater. Huh. All right. It's a good way to cover up a whole lot of that, you know, painting job that you would have had to do otherwise. Ooh. So Smart movie making. Yeah. All right. So Green Room, we're recommending it. I think it's in the top five films of the year so far. You're a little bit tepid on it. Uh, probably don't want to put it that high. No, but I'm not too sure how many other or what else I'd have above it. <sighs> to figure out my list here pretty soon. I, I, I like it. I can't wait for Jeremy Solnier's next film, but I, I don't know. At the end of this, I went, I was hoping for a little more. All right. I don't know. So next week. You're not going to be on the show, yeah, unfortunately. The show. We're going to miss you. Instead, we're going to have to have super fan Tony C., on he's going to help me review x-men apocalypse have fun with that i can't believe I can't you're willing to, to miss an oscar isaac film you love that guy i do love that guy and now you get to see him painted in blue and wearing a cape i want to i want an honest review of it i, I kind of like being able to step away from the show and see see how it turns out right. sad thing is i think that uh, tony c is probably a marvel fanboy like you you guys are youngsters you're closer in age to the whole x-men tv series i think so. oh yeah that was great growing up watching that i hope that he brings a little bit of sanity to the discussion oh no chance pulls you back in some your enthusiasm and if it's a flaming turd at least you should mention or or the two of you should mention what a turd it is what I, color it makes i will give you an honest review of it but i was probably i still think i'm looking forward to this movie more than i was looking forward to captain america there's just something about those x-men just get me. <laughs> All right. So Dwight is played by Megan Blair in the movie Blue Ruin, one of our favorite movies in the lab podcast. His friend Ben Gaffney's talking to him about a gun. He doesn't know much about guns. We were just talking about this. So it's apropos. Hey, man, I know this is personal. That's how you fail. No speeches, no talking. You point the gun, you shoot the gun. <laughs> it's the only advice you need from the laugh podcast we're glad to give it to you over there is mr uh two frames ryan bowl it's been a pleasure i'm the l train box about them everybody there be dragons are you going to the movies this weekend let laugh know what you saw Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash the Laugh Podcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. Mm-hmm.